podcast for today. We're going to talk about lying and also about seeing what God sees. Um, thanks for joining. This story contains a lie, a lie told by God. Um, maybe you don't think of God as lying to people, uh, but there are stories in the Bible where God does trick people, deceive them, lie to them. The way we understand lying in our culture, maybe growing up, um, and I'm only speaking for myself here, but um, I think it's a pretty normal pattern of human development to try to get your kids not to lie to you or anybody else, whether it's a teacher or something like that. The lie is a natural defense for a powerless person. C.S. Lewis wrote about that. It's, the lie is the children's only self-defense, he says. Um, maybe you could add hiding to that. When you don't have a lot of power, you do what you can to survive. And kids often think that they can get away with it. And that's the beauty of a little kid's lie, is that even when you saw them do something, they say, no, I didn't do it. <laughs> and you say, you know, you can't lie to me. And it's a beautiful moment of parenting and raising kids and caring for kids, as, um, as all of us do on some level or another. But um, the, the problem of a lie is that you can never trust the liar again. And we want to be able to trust each other. And when someone can easily lie without a lot of consequences or scrutiny, that creates a situation where we're never quite sure about trusting. And that might be the trouble with God. If God lies, can God be trusted? If God deceives and tricks somebody, can you ever trust God? The prophets famously accused God of lying to them, tricking them, Jeremiah being the most famous to do that. But here we have another prophet, Samuel, being told by God to anoint a new king. The kingship of Israel was a um, new innovation. They had cried out for a king. If you read the story of the judges, the book of Judges is one where there is no king of Israel and everyone did that which is right in his own eyes. They were doing horrible things, putting pineapple on pizza, all sorts of tragedies were unfolding, and that wasn't the worst of it. But there was no king in Israel, and their, their call for a king was really a call for military defense. We want a king who will lead us in battle like all the other nations around us. This was the normal pattern of human civilization and development. One man would rise up as the greatest warrior, and that man would be followed by other warriors who then would have the kind of power to control everybody else. That sort of pattern throughout prehistory and current history is still kind of in effect. If you've ever been in a class election, usually the tallest kid will win. Weird how that height thing still works. And it worked for Saul. Um, he was chosen to be king mainly because he was tall. Um, 
And even though Saul doesn't really want to be king, uh, he becomes this king. And this is the dynasty that is to be established. The, the reign of Saul will continue on throughout Israel's history. But we know what happened to Saul. We know that his relationship with God was full of lies. Saul lies to God, tries to trick God. God asks him to do something. He does it halfway and then says he did it all the way. <clears throat> and this basic breach of trust means that now in this story, God tricks Saul and Saul's allies. And by the way he does that, um, he says that um, I want to send you, Samuel, to Bethlehem to anoint a new king. Go to Jesse. Jesse is the son of Obed, who is the son of, does anybody know? Who Jesse is the grandson of in the Bible? Anybody? A very famous woman. She has her own book of the Bible. Ruth. Uh, I think that's the right generational um, numbers there. Go ahead. I know you had it, Barbara. <laughs> yes, I had it. That's all I had. That's all I can say. Good. Yes. Hey, I should have waited a little longer for the audience participation part of this. Okay. Thank you. Um, and and uh, thank you for replying. Um, that this Ruth um, Ruth story is one of someone coming from a foreign land, Moab, uh, with a different religion, different gods and goddesses and becoming part of the covenant of Israel with, that God has made with God's people. And so Jesse is this descendant of this family, um, and this is to whom God sends Samuel. Samuel says, very, very practical question, he's politically savvy, he's, he's sort of the Gandalf in the story, he's running to and fro, pulling different strings, trying to get alliances formed to defend God's people. Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hears of this, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and just tell everybody I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. And you're going to anoint one of his kids. This lie is the trick, the, the switcheroo that God is pulling on Saul. Saul has lied to God and tried to trick God unsuccessfully. And now God will trick Saul. When it comes to the ethics of lying, um, St. Augustine and others, uh, theologians throughout church history, and even before that, in these texts, commentators on these texts in the Old Testament, um, have ma made it very clear that when dealing with a destructive enemy, it's, it's perfectly right to lie to someone who is trying to maim, hurt, and destroy and kill. Um, and that is what God does, and that is what God's people do. It's never wrong to lie to someone who is trying to hurt someone, trying to do damage to someone. The ethics of lying gets a little more complicated when someone is trying to do something to us. Um, protecting someone else uh, is certainly a good reason to lie when someone is trying to 
attack or hurt or destroy someone else. Um, but when it comes to ourselves, that is a, that is the, a bigger question of whether it's right to lie. Um, and it seems like it seems like there is a difference between self-preservation and self-glorification, if you will, that in our protection of even ourselves, the, to trick someone who is malicious, who has malicious intent, uh, seems to be what God does here in this story. Even though God and Samuel um, do have a lot of power, Saul is the king, and he can order people to kill Samuel in an instant. The tradition of the kings killing the prophets is a very old one in the Old Testament. It just got started, and it is about to be started off with a bang. That later in the history of Israel, you have numerous prophets being killed by kings and queens, whereas this is the, the beginning of that. The prophetic tradition is one of calling people to repentance, to return to the covenant, to come home, and the royal tradition, the kingship tradition in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and all through the Bible, even into the New Testament, is one of establishing the reign of God in the world. And sometimes these fall into conflict because immense power is given to these kings. Immense power. And power doesn't really corrupt, as they say, but it reveals the corruption really fast. That's already there. Um, and of course, there's lots of platitudes about that. Absolute power corrupts absolutely and all those sorts of things. But kings, when they get in charge, tend to want to silence dissenting voices. And the prophets were always those dissenting voices. And a lot of times in biblical scholarship, people want to pit one against the other, that the prophets were the good guys and the kings were the bad guys. But if you look at the stories, um, there was a little bit of both. Um, Prophets had their ego problems too, and so did kings. Kings just had a little more political authority and military authority. The prophets um, had huge authority in the land. And this tension um, was not always bad. Sometimes we need that tension in life, for sure. But to say that only one is good and the other is bad um, really gets into a problem when you come to the person of Jesus Christ, who is both prophet, priest, and king, that he is both the established ruler of all creation. On his cross, Pilate puts Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, to show that this is what he has claimed to be. And also uh, the, the prophetic office, that he is a prophet and prophesies numerous things about himself and about a lot of other things as well. And so Jesus embodies this tension of prophet and priest and king, but especially the prophet king tension that exists all through the history of the Old Testament. And so this lie becomes the way of God changing God's mind. Um, later in verse 7, um, you know, he, he, he does say, but the Lord, Yahweh, said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In the previous chapter, the word Naham is used twice. Um, that it, that it, the word is translated probably regret or changed his mind, but God regrets that he made Saul king. God changes his mind that he makes Saul king. 
we're obviously personifying God in a lot of ways, but that's how the Bible tells the story. Um, God is a very personal God in the Old Testament. And so, and in the New Testament as well. We, we must never make a dichotomy between one God and the other, of course. But this, um, this personal message to Samuel to find the right one to be king um, is really strange because he goes through this rundown of the brothers, one after the other, and the tallest and the strongest are rejected and the oldest are rejected. And they finally say there remains the youngest, but he's out keeping the sheep. Um, the traditional job of the youngest brother apparently is to keep the sheep. Um, and who knows what else is going on with David, why he's out there, why he's stuck out there when everybody else seems to be doing a lot of other things except for him in these stories. Um, does it have to do with his birth um, that he comments on in Psalm 51? Um, who knows why David is out there? But they get to him and they bring him in. And it says he's ruddy and has beautiful eyes. And he was handsome. Like three statements of how good looking he is, which I thought the original command and instructions were that God doesn't look in the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And God doesn't care what people look like. And then it's like, and they found David and he was really, really good looking. <laughs> that irony is not lost on me. And I don't think it was lost on the original hearers. The word ruddy there is, I believe, the same expression used for Esau, who is red, reddish of hair, reddish of complexion. Um, hard to know. It's probably red hair. Um, you think about King David having red hair. It's kind of maybe different than what we think of um, when we think of Bible characters. Hard to know. The most famous red-haired king is Frederick Barbarossa, a red beard, literally. Um, and so this red-haired son is brought out, um, and he is anointed to be the king. And this is how God works, through the smallest, least powerful brother. That's how God is working in this story. Um, it says that the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David. We can see in this these texts the combination of the prophet, priest, and king, even in David of whom Jesus is a descendant, um, happening right here at the beginning of the story. And this is the beginning of David's reign. He's the subject of, of a, the largest chunk of biblical literature, uh, if you count up the number of words about him. Um, he is the one that starts the dynasty that eventually Mary and Joseph are part of, and Jesus. Um, and this, So this is a very important history moment not just because of what happens in the life of David, but also what happens in our lives as well. That God does not, God does not see as mortals see, who look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So even if David was, in fact, good-looking, um, the more important thing was his heart. Um, and it's hard to know what that fully means, because we know David's story later. And we know that he is someone that has a lot of heart. He is a poet, a, a singer, a songwriter. 75-ish psalms of, are credited to him in our Psalter, the psalm book of 150. Um, there are some songs that he sings. So he has, a, he has a heart in the sense that he can feel 
what he's feeling. Um, but that does not mean he's perfect. The Lord sees not as mortals see. So whatever God has seen in David is something that God wants, uh, wants for the one he has chosen to be king. It is very idiosyncratic, if you will, the way God is loving and caring for David. It is not something we can just be cookie cutter about and say that God only picks people like him or something like that. God has picked David for the specific moment in time that he is going to do and the things that he will do through David. But that doesn't mean that God approves of everything David does. Again, these stories are meant to be morally complex. They are meant to ask us moral, morally complex questions about our lives and about what is right and what is wrong for us in our situation, just as they had to do that in theirs. And that is what God is calling us to do, to not look on the outward appearance, but to look on the heart. And also to know our own hearts, to know our own feelings, to know our own affections and what we love and what we don't love, and to be honest about that, to be careful to remember to remember that God loves all of us, and that means our hearts as well, as flighty as they can be in all the ways that we disappoint ourselves and others. God loves us, and God cares for us, and God knows us um, more than anyone else in this whole world. So we thank God for the calling of and anointing of David, and also the fact that God will do whatever it takes to restore the covenant with God's people. Amen. Today, the church, especially the Anglican church, remembers the first book of common prayer. Um, Yesterday is the observance of the feast, the actual day of feast of Joan of Arc, Um, which we transferred to Sunday. But today, um, we commemorate the first book of common prayer, the book that you're praying out of right now. The first book of common prayer came into the use on the day of Pentecost, June 9th in 1549, in the second year of the reign of King Edward VI. From it have descended all subsequent editions and revisions of the book in churches in the Anglican Communion around the world. Um, it was prepared by a commission of learned bishops and priests. The format, substance, and style of the book um, were primarily the work of Thomas Cramner. And you can see the desk today there at Lambeth Palace where he worked on it. The principal sources employed in this compilation were the medieval Latin services of the use of Sarum, Salisbury, Um, with some enrichments from the Greek liturgies, ancient Galician rites, and the vernacular German forms prepared by Luther, Cramner's wife was Lutheran, and a revised Latin liturgy of the reforming Archbishop Herman of Cologne. The Psalter, the Psalms, and other biblical passages were drawn from the English Great Bible, authorized by King Henry VIII in 1539. And the Great Litany, which we've prayed here last week, Um, was taken from the English form used as early as 1544. So some stuff that was from far away and some stuff that had been used nearby was put into one book. Um, This was obviously done politically to consolidate the worship of a church that was going through a major transition of authority. But it was also done to 
enliven the faith of ordinary people who lived in that land, to say that they should pray in their own language, the language that they spoke um, on their, when they were born, the language that they spoke in their childhood, the language that they used for everyday business, to use um, a book of common prayer, a common language that they could share, and a common form of worship. Apart from the felicitous translations and paraphrases of the old Latin forms, um, the real genius lay in its simplification of complicated liturgical uses of the medieval church, so that it was sustainable for use by the laity as well as by the clergy. The book thus became a manual of common worship for Anglicans and a primary source for their personal spirituality. The 1979 Book of Common Prayer that we use is a, a descendant of this first prayer book that came out um, around this time of year in 1549. I do think that it's gotten more complex over the years. The 79 is a little hard to use um, unless someone kind of walks me through it. Although when I first became Episcopalian and I tried to do the daily office every day on my own in a hospital chapel in D.C., I, would, I wouldn't know how to find any of the, the, um, the right... Uh, canticles or anything like that. So I just prayed it straight through. Um, and eventually I learned how to add the Psalms to that. And eventually I learned how to add the uh, Bible readings. But at first I was just praying straight through page by page um, to the end of morning prayer. And that's okay to do too. I think the point is to pray. Almighty and ever-living God, whose servant Thomas Cramner with others restored the language of the people in the prayers of your church. Make us always thankful for this heritage and help us so to pray in the Spirit, that with under the understanding that we may worthily magnify your holy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.